It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm here with my co-host Eric Farmer. And I'm here with my co-host Eli Kurtz. Today we'll examine another genre of wuxia. We're looking at comedy, its place in games, and its rewards and perils. But first... We have some patrons to thank. Yes, we do indeed. Uh, so with no more ado, to Brian Kurtz, Fraser Ronald, Jared Rasher, Jason Detman, Jeremy Marr, Liam Murray, Lowell Francis, Misdirected Mark Productions, P.K. Sullivan, Rob Abrazado, Sean Nicholson, and Todd Crapper, we say thank you so much for your support. Yeah, thank you very much. And if you are not a patron, that's totally cool. But if you're interested in chipping us a couple of bucks just to keep the lights on, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash Hustle For as little as a dollar, you can make your kung fu stronger. Uh, so just keep that in mind. That's right. It'll help us to, you know, fund our production of this podcast. It'll help us to build a nest egg for when we start to require expenses for layout and art and stuff for the game that we're developing. And uh, it's just a really kind thing to do. So if you'd, if you'd like to... We would love your support. If not, we totally understand. Absolutely. And keep in mind that we do have a bunch of like cool rewards and goals that we are working towards, and we just need a little bit more help uh, to get there. But that's all the Patreon talk. Let's move into the movie. What do you think, Eli? Yeah, that sounds great. And so the movie is Kung Fu Hustle. We're talking about uh, comedy, so maybe... Uh, my favorite Kung Fu comedy of all time. Uh, Kung Fu Hustle was made in 2004. It was directed by Stephen Chow. It was written by Stephen Chow in addition to three other folks, Huo Shin, Chan Man Kuang, and Sang Kan Chung. And it's got what I think is basically an ensemble cast. There are a lot of characters in this thing, and it turns out a lot of the, uh, a lot of the people are really well known in wuxia movie history as well so uh, you want to take us through this list here absolutely and we're going to give you the names of all of these characters and we'll try to use refer to them by these names when we give the summary but when you're watching the movie none of these names matter no um, <laughs> so starring uh in the movie so triple threat stephen chow as sing and danny chan kwok kwan as brother sing leader of the axe gang in addition to those two main characters there are some big supporting characters uh yuan wa plays the landlord of pigsty alley and yuan chu plays the landlady of pigsty alley uh, the characters are married and i wondered since they both have the same surname, Yuan, if they were married in real life. And I did some research and I found out that that's not actually the case, um, but they both studied under Yu Jem Yuan in uh, Chinese opera theater alongside the Seven Little Fortunes, who include Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, and some real luminaries of uh, wuxia cinema. And they both took an honorific surname, Yuan, as is customary, because of their shared master, Yu Jem Wen. And so uh, it was kind of a cool little cultural tidbit that I wanted to share. They're real fun characters, too, and they, they definitely get a chance to, to show off a little bit. So, But in addition to those, we've, got, we've still got a, a, quite a few characters to get through. So it's Bruce Lung Siu Lung as the Beast, who's also a prof prolific martial arts actor. Sing Yu as he's called the Coolie in the movie. Um, we're not going to use that term anymore. It's taken on um, a racist connotation. It's basically a, a, a laborer, but it's 
it's a word we're not going to use anymore. Um, yeah. But he was also the older brother Lamb and Ip Man, uh, and also a real life Shaolin monk. And uh, it's nice to see him in this movie. Yeah. And as far as he goes in this uh, movie, instead of calling him the Cooley, we're going to call him 12 Kicks because that's the style that he fights under and also how he is known in the in the script. Yeah, he's real cool. Matching up with him, we have Chu Chi Ling as the tailor, who's also a prolific martial arts actor, and Dong Si Hua as Donut, who I definitely recognized. I'd have to go back and actually look at his catalog. Uh, and then rounding out with a couple of even more minor characters is Lam Chi Chung as Bone, Sing's um, sort of funny, laconic sidekick. Mm-hmm. And Huang Shengyi as Fong, Sing's love interest, who was also the White Snake in Sorcerer and the White Snake. Yeah. So there are actually quite a few uh, actors that we've seen before and some actors that have been working for a really long time in this movie. I know The Beast in particular, he actually retired in 1988. Oh, wow. And he was quiet for almost 20 years in wuxia cinema and in cinema in general but then he came back for this movie and there's a beggar in this movie that just for kicks i looked up who played him because his name looked kind of familiar and his credits go all the way back to the 60s in a lot of hong kong cinema so you know there's i think sort of peppering the the backdrop of this movie are a lot of sort of classic long-term actors in hong kong like i said i dearly love this movie it's (laughs) It's just so goofy from start to finish, <laughs> and it's got so many funny little moments, and it's got some cool fights, and I mean, I, I'm just a, a fan of Stephen Chow in general. Speaking of Stephen Chow, though, have you seen Shaolin Soccer? A long time ago, but yes, I've seen it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while for me, too, and I know that the guy who plays Bone is also sort of his uh, partner in crime um, in Shaolin Soccer as well. I think the relationship uh, between the two of them is a lot like um, Simon Pegg and is it Nick Frost? Yeah, from the Cornetto trilogy with Edgar Wright. Yes, that's right. I I think of Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and then uh, Stephen Chow and the guy who plays Bone to be kind of contemporaries in different parts of the world in the the cinematic uh, industry. They're definitely like Stan Laurel uh, and Oliver Hardy sort of types. You know, you have. Yes, absolutely. So they definitely fall into that that archetype. Yeah. So this movie is it's super entertaining. It's basically a Looney Tunes cartoon uh, with with kung fu action uh, in it and like sort of a scale beyond scale as far as these characters go. Just like just when you think it can't get any bigger, it gets bigger. And it has a really the the opening to the movie is is really funny because it doesn't set up any of the the main heroes of the story it sets up the bad guys yeah it kind of introduces you to the uh setting more than it introduces you to the characters uh it's this weird scene where we basically find out that the axe gang is the big show in town they're the toughs who are the bad guys and uh everybody kind of kowtows to them including the um police of the city that they operate out of but yeah the thing that i love about this first scene is that it demonstrates so clearly and in fact whenever there's the little title card thing that it gives you a couple sentences about the world and how it's set up um, it lays out the zhang hu perfectly it says things are tough in 1930s china gangs fight for control of territory and only in the poorest areas where gangs have no interest can people find any kind of peace. It's just such a concise intro to exactly what the Zhang Hu is. You know, it's this 
extra legal place where people are suffering and there are people who are exploiting that to their advantage and other people who are trying to protect them and all that. And we see that the civic authority has zero power right away in the movie. Cause the funny part is, is that we see a guy beating up the cops and then we mm-hmm. see the ax gang kill that guy. So now, so now we know that the ax gang is super badass. Plus they get a cool like dance number and there's some like Henry Mancini style music that's playing and it really sets up this borderline musical cartoon that that Kung Fu Hustle ends up being. It's weird, wild stuff. I love it. <laughs> so then we go to Pigsty Alley, which is one of these the, the poorest areas where the gangs don't care about them because they don't have any money. So people can live sort of normally. And we we follow the landlord as he like goes around from tenant to tenant. And he's generally like just a real creeper mm-hmm. he's wearing like this like silk robe and just sort of like flouncing about and playing pranks on people and like spying in the bathroom but you get to meet all of the characters you get to meet the tailor and you get to meet donut the 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 baker and you get to see uh 12 kicks doing his his sort of like labor work and you get to see all of these characters and it introduces you to this little community of pigsty alley and then you see also that the landlord's wife who we know only as the landlady is sort of the bad cop to the landlord's good cop uh whereas the good whereas the landlord is this just drunk philanderer the landlady is a chain-smoking, highly aggressive, nagging type of character. Right. She's the ball buster. Yeah. Right. Like if we're going to, if we're going to use a term like that, but that's, that's what this movie is. Like this movie is, if we hadn't done an episode on like problematic content last time, we probably could have done it for this movie. This is fertile ground for problematic content. (laughs) Yes. There's a lot of characters that are drawn very broadly for comic effect. Yeah. Uh, We talked about the Taylor last time as a heroic character but upon rewatching this it's it's definitely played for laughs Mm -hmm. he minces as he stands he is he's coded so gay yeah very much so and uh there are characters here and there there's also this barber character who's a recurring dude and he's just kind of this hapless loser who is always deflated that's the that's the way i can describe him most accurately he the first shot we have of him is him trying to take a shower in this little drip of a faucet and then he like the water turns off and so he shouts after the landlady and we get a shot of him from behind and like he's barely even wearing his pants and he's just this constantly played for laughs kind of mess of a human being we've got a gal who's supposed to be kind of the i think she's definitely the the flirty voluptuous woman and uh the landlady calls her like horse tooth something or other it's just there's uh, there's a lot going on but we get to see this this setup of this little community we get to meet all of these characters as they interact with the landlord and all of this like the hapless barber and and all of these things so we get a sense of the community and then it gets disrupted. Uh, so Sing and Bone, our, our main characters, such as they are, show up in Pigsty Alley and they're impersonating the infamous Axe Gang. And uh, they go to the barber to get a haircut and then they can't pay for it. And they play out this ruse where they're pretending to be Axe Gang members. So they try to fleece the barber, essentially. And the barber doesn't stand for any of it. He goes to get the landlady and the landlady comes and 
takes off her flip-flop and smacks Singh in the head <laughs> until he's ready to, like, cut and run. Well, and there's a whole scene where, like, the community, like, bands together. And Singh is like, mm-hmm. oh, hey, well, you know what? I'll just, I'll fight one of you. And, like, there's a sort of a, like, there keeps being, like, a comic turn of him picking somebody who thinks he's is weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ends up being, there's a really funny part where there's, like, an old guy in glasses. And he's like, you. And he comes out and he's just, like, super ripped. And then he picks a little kid mm-hmm. out of the crowd who has the same physique when he steps out. It, it, some of the jokes are really, <laughs> they're really good in this one. But yeah, the landlady finally beats him about the head and shoulders with her flip-flop and uh, nearly drives him away. And he, in a last-ditch effort, he pulls out this firecracker because the Axe Gang is known for lighting flares to signal all of the other Axe Gang members in the area to flock to that site to like help them fight or intimidate or whatever so he lights this firecracker he throws it over a wall and threatens like oh the axe gang's coming for you now there's an explosion and then this guy walks around the corner who's followed by axe axe gang goons and he's clearly some sort of like lieutenant in the axe gang and his hat has been exploded by a firecracker and is smoking and he comes around and he's like who did that who who threw that firecracker? And he's clearly going to visit some violence upon this person, whoever did it. So Singh denies it or, or just kind of hides. And they eventually uh, confront the barber. And the barber's like, I'm not scared of you. You need to get out of here. The lieutenant's like, he pulls out his axe. And he says, what'd you say? The barber starts to say, I, I said you need to get out of here. The lieutenant goes to like smack this dude right in the forehead with his axe blade but then there's some movement faster than the eye can see and the lieutenant is knocked backwards into a trash can and like his back is broken by the force of the blow and um the axe gang the real axe gang sets off a real axe gang flare and all of a sudden the leader of the axe gang with his small army of gangsters shows up to see what's going on And uh, he extorts the crowd even more than his lieutenant did. He eventually drags a mother and her young child out into the center quadrangle of Pigsty Alley. And he pulls out like a can of fuel and dumps it all over them. And he's about to light a match and throw it on this mother and her child because nobody's coming forward as the perpetrator of all this this action against the Axe Gang. And then as the lighter is flying through the air and it's about to land, our dear friend 12 Kicks steps out and grabs the lighter and he says, I did it. And um, the Axe Gang leader is unimpressed. He signals the gang to attack. The gang goes after 12 Kicks. And we learn that 12 Kicks actually has some real potent kung fu skill and takes on several of these uh, Axe Gang members by himself. So we see 12 Kicks take on a bunch of these goons and the axe gang have a have a cool style they're all in like cool black suits with you know satiny lapels and and hats and they all have these hatchets so they they make a great goon squad to to throw at the the characters so but soon in all of the this melee uh with 12 kicks it is revealed that the tailor and donut are also secret martial arts masters and between the three of them, they fight off the entire axe gang. So the tailor uses the um, strong arm technique. Hungar is the name of the kung fu style. Yeah. Uh, and then 
Donut is the master of the, the eight trigram pole. It's fun because you see it calls back into that setup of the when the landlord was walking through. You get to see these little callbacks that you didn't notice. Finally, they pay off when their secrets are revealed. Mm-hmm. So that happens. So they, they fight all the, the bad guys off. But of course, that can't be the end. Of, of course not. Yeah. Um, so the Axe Gang does retreat. And then uh, Singh and Bone, who've been hiding out this whole time, go follow the Axe Gang and try and work their way into the gang. But it doesn't work. They're almost killed and they eventually have to escape. We find out that, uh, if nothing else, Singh is a competent uh, lock picker. They're kind of hiding out in this. It's like a streetlight thing. It looks like the sort of place you've got. You've got street traffic officers who stand in the middle of an intersection and direct traffic. This looks like it's a combination of a streetlight and like a little watchtower thing where one of those officers would stand and direct traffic from up above. So it might be that, but it might also be where the mechanical parts from when there used to be like actual levers and stuff that would, um, would move traffic signals up and oh, down. Oh, that makes sense. Um, before they were lit, that that would go in there. But it's not clear exactly what it is. That's just my best guess. But yeah, there's this like weird barrel-shaped space that's there like... It's like their tree hangout. fort or something. I mean, the fun thing about this this whole thing is that Sing and Bone are... They're dirtbags. Oh, the worst. <laughs> they're And they're almost... They're like right on the edge of being charming. You know, and they, they always make the wrong choice, mm-hmm. which sort of endears you to them, like, as the movie goes mm-hmm. on. And uh, we find out in this scene that Singh, when he was a young kid, was walking down an alley and this homeless man said uh, that the kid had the bone structure of a, of a true natural born kung fu genius. And the kid's like, oh, really? And the homeless guy is like, I happen to have a manual for the Buddha's palm technique right here. And it's priceless. But seeing as you're so special, I'll sell it to you for $10. And the little kid's like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. So he breaks open his piggy bank. He gives his entire life savings and he gets this Buddha's palm manual uh, and he's studying it. And then he's on it's like a playground or like a yard of some kind. And he sees there are a bunch of bullies who are picking on a little girl who is mute, I think, right? She And he stands up to these bullies and he gets into his Buddha's palm stance and he's like, I'm going to defend this little girl. And they soundly beat him and throw him to the ground and they like pee on his head. It's really, it's really just devastating. It's really, it's an awful scene right. of bullying. It's pretty right. bad. And, and the whole thing was that these bullies wanted to get the little girl's uh, like lollipop thing. And she, you know, escapes and she tries to give this lollipop to uh, the kid and and he refuses it. And and then we flash back forward and we see that this experience convinced Singh to turn to a life of crime. He was conned by uh, this homeless guy in the alleyway. And then he tried to stand up for somebody who was in need and got beaten badly for it and he decided no 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 it's a it's a criminal's life for me for the rest of my life and um right he learned that like doing good got you beat up and then when you see the axe gang and they live the life of luxury Mm -hmm. that that's that's the ideal that he wants to aspire to is to like be in that gang and and have the nice things and the good Mm -hmm. life and so they're still trying to get into the axe gang and they decide that singing or singing bone decide that they're going to return to pigsty alley and try to assassinate the landlady 
who drove off, you know, the, the Axe Gang and gain the Axe Gang's favor that way. And um, long story short, hilarity ensues. <laughs> right. I mean, we don't want to necessarily want to explain all of the jokes, but there is a, a knife throwing scene that made oh, me laugh man. out loud in my living room by myself. <laughs> and probably Eli's favorite part of the movie. Yeah. Well, it's like this knife throwing scene happens and then he gets bitten by a bunch of poisonous snakes who are in a cage for some reason. And then the landlady finds out what's going on. And so Sing is like, well, I got to get out of here. So he runs away and the landlady, <laughs> he looked down at her feet and it's like, it's like Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner. It's like her legs are a blur right. and she takes off after Sing and they have this Looney Tunes chase scene down the road. <laughs> And they're dodging. Right. Ending with her hitting a billboard because she's like flown through the air at super speed. So it's it's full on Looney Tunes. And there's actually a lot of like little nods to not just cartoons, but other movies. Oh, yeah. And we'll I'm sure we'll talk about some of those uh, later on. But yeah, it's just so silly. And then the very next scene is back in this kind of streetlight uh, or signal light treehouse place. And it's Sing in the tub. And he's got these lips that are like the size of a palm. They're gigantic. And he's shaking them and he's trying to like work off the snake poison and stuff. And you look outside of this thing and like a, the camera goes around this treehouse type thing. And he starts like pounding the walls. And all of a sudden his hand is like bending the metal on the outside of this thing. And, it, and all of a sudden the outside of this treehouse thing is covered in these hand-shaped indentations and you're like oh maybe the buddha's palm technique wasn't such a, a bogus thing and maybe he is a natural born kung fu genius or something right so while this is going on while sing is recovering uh the axe gang can't stand to have be defeated by the masters in pigsty alley so they hire two blind musicians slash assassins to kill the masters and uh there's some cool that what shouldn't work there's some like cgi sort of like bard powers here where they're like strumming this instrument and it's it's creating like blades of sound that come out and like it cuts 12 kicks head right off yeah they're playing some extremely sharp notes oh boy uh we will talk <laughs> about that later um <laughs> and so it takes all of uh, basically the three masters. Uh, Twelve kicks gets killed. The tailor and Donut get really hurt dealing with them, and then they end up having to. They end up fighting the landlord, who's revealed to be a Tai Chi master, and the landlady uses her sonic power of the lion's roar, which is apparently some sort of like mythical lost technique. Mm -hmm. And. This is a really interesting scene for me, too, because, you know, the first fight scene we saw was right after the introduction of 12 Kicks, the Taylor and Donut. Mm -hmm. And we we saw the teaser that they had something going on with them. Right. And we we then in that fight scene reveal like, oh, they're actually master warriors. This is interesting with the landlord and the landlady the whole time. The landlady is nagging and shouting and, and, and like just yelling at people the whole time. And the landlord is constantly being beaten by his wife because he's a philandering douchebag. And she keeps like finding lipstick on his cheek and is slapping him around the apartment. And it turns out that like 
That is exactly who they are as people because the landlady has this super powered voice technique and the landlord is able to redirect like any amount of force to where it's totally harmless to him. It's it's a really nice little revelation, I think. Yeah, it's funny because it was hard to tell whether like especially with the landlady, whether she just had cartoon powers. Like whether she just existed in like cartoon space, but then you realize that oh no, she's actually a kung fu master along with these other people. So we we're seeing like some of the scales getting revealed and sort of settling into where everybody fits in this and what their power levels are. Long story short, the landlady and the landlord totally decimate these uh, musical assassins, and the axe gang had showed up to watch these assassins take the pigsty alley apart and the landlady and the landlord show up in the gang leader's car and without even using any words they tell him basically you leave us alone and you get out of here and the dude shook he as they're driving away is so nervous that he's his hand is shaking while he's trying to put a cigar in his mouth and then his assistant's hand is shaking when he tries to light the cigar sets the dude's hair on fire it's just it's so silly. <laughs> <laughs> this movie really gets me. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get we're about to get to the point where the movie starts to lose me. Yeah, okay. Um, All right. And, and I can understand why. Um so why don't you why don't you take us into that? The landlord and landlady have defeated the assassins, but the three masters, 12 Kicks, Donut and the Tailor, had died in that fight. And mm-hmm. so Pigsty Alley is mourning the death of these masters and they criticize the landlord and landlady and they respond saying that they gave up their fighting life because their son was killed in a duel. And they say, well, you should train somebody. And this is when the, the barber says, oh, you should train, you should train me. And <laughs> she basically slaps him around and says, training takes a lot of time unless you're a natural born Kung Fu genius. Mm-hmm. I wonder I think who, we've heard that phrase where before. Where did we hear that before? Yeah. <laughs> so after this scene in Pigsty Alley, we go back to Dirtbag Town, and there is this scene where Singh and Bone are on a bus, and they're trying to intimidate this guy with glasses. It's a really low blow that they're doing. They're just making fun of his glasses, but the dude's not having it, and he starts like smacking their head against the bench, and then he throws him off the bus. And Singh is really frustrated by this constant string of failures that they're suffering. And especially because Bone doesn't really do anything. Like he's he's an actor and that's it. Like he's he's strictly a con man. He's got no ability to to like he's got no ability to fight or be sincerely intimidating or anything. And so Singh is frustrated. He kind of walks away. Bone goes around the corner with him. And all of a sudden, right across the street is this woman who's selling candy from a uh, a cart. And this is Fong, the same girl that Singh tried to save when he was a child. And Fong kind of reaches out to him and, and through sign language tells him, I, I remember you. And then she opens up this tin and pulls out this old lollipop that she's been saving. And, and Singh realizes who she is. And it's this redemptive opportunity for Singh. He can he can choose a different path and he can become a good person if he can just make this new or reforge this connection with Fong. Uh, but he rejects it. He throws the lollipop to the ground and it shatters. He runs back around the corner. 
Bone follows him and then Singh is like, no, you get away from me. I, I just want to be alone. And so Singh and Bone uh, are separated from each other. And then immediately afterward, Singh is abducted by the Axe Gang and taken to the leader. And the leader tells Singh that he's supposed to go fetch this master warrior who has been in prison for decades. He's known as the Beast. And uh, this is is a weird scene. (laughs) It is a weird scene. So Singh can basically pick any lock super fast. So they send him into this facility and... This is like, there's a bunch of like horror movie references. Like there's a reference to The Shining mm-hmm. and, uh, and then they finally, he finally breaks the beast out and the beast is this like unassuming old guy wearing, um, like an undershirt and flip flops and giant boxers. Right. <laughs> he's like got wisps of hair still left on his head. He looks like he hasn't showered in a week. He's, he's this real underwhelming figure. Right. And they have to convince him to fight and he's like i was in there because i wanted to be in there because there wasn't anybody worthy to fight so unless unless you unless you have somebody then i'm not interested but luckily they have the landlord and the landlady and so he gets interested and he demonstrates a little bit of his power he literally like plucks a bullet out of the air with his fingers that's how fast he is this scene where the beast is being kind of prompted to demonstrate his power is taking place in the casino that's owned by the axe gang and they convince the beast that the landlord and the landlady are real threats and he's like okay well i'll go find him and he goes out into the casino and sits down at a gambling table and lo and behold the landlord and the landlady are right there they came to the axe gang place to face off against them and the beast happened to be there instead so there's a huge fight in the casino between the landlord the landlady and the beast and he demonstrates his power he's taking them apart and even their combined powers aren't aren't working and they do manage to to break him down a little bit using the lion's roar but it still ends up in a bad way and he ends up in a complicated lock with both the landlord and the landlady all sort of like tied up together with the beast and sing in a moment of conscience hits the beast over the head and that gives them the chance to to escape and and deal with him but sing gets pummeled literally pummeled into the ground by the beast reminding him of their dead son the landlord and the landlady flee with sing back to pigsty alley they bandage him up and they say well the only way that he could possibly survive if he's a natural born kung fu genius but luckily we know that he is it's a little like oh who would know that being beat up by the beast would clear his his chi channels and you know and now he becomes this great warrior <laughs> right but he literally like pupates. The only thing he needed to fulfill his destiny as the chosen one was to have every bone and ligament in his body completely shattered. So he he literally pupates uh, <laughs> and <laughs> comes out dressed in white, clean shaven, not looking like a dirt bag anymore. And he goes out to confront the beast. And I, we can kind of zip through the end of this, but there's a long, long fight scene. Mm-hmm. He not only takes on the entire axe gang with his new powers... Um, but then he fights the beast and the beast reveals new powers and he has to counter it. And then eventually he gets launched up into the sky, has an encounter with an actual Buddha mm-hmm. and comes back down to earth with the aerial Buddha's palm strike, which leaves a massive palm print 
in the ground uh, when it slams down. Uh, it's yeah. it's ridiculous. It really is, and it's it's threatening to completely destroy the beast, whose newfound or like newly revealed toad style superpowers are powerless against the Buddha's palm technique. And so the the beast says, "I surrender," and. Because Singh is now this fully enlightened chosen one warrior, he's like, oh, okay, you surrender, I'll stop. But then the beast pulls out one of his weird little uh, lotus dagger looking things, which he used to kind of turn the tables on the landlady and the landlord back in the casino and tries to similarly turn the tables on Singh. But Singh effortlessly parries the dagger thing. He uses the Buddha's palm technique again to show uh the beast that like i could kill you anytime i want to but i'm not doing that and then the beast is like wow well you how did you know how did you do that technique and Singh is like well uh you know surrender and i'll teach you and so the beast becomes Singh's student in like a tearful moment he collapses on the ground and begs to be the student and then Singh eventually goes back to dirtbag town and reunites with bone and then Fong is there too, and that's kind of the the closing moment of the movie is when Sing and Fong look at each other, and it's like, oh, now they can be in love again or something. Right. Again, I mean, this is not the first or probably last unearned love story that we'll that we'll have in the movie, but but I wanted to swing back to where the beast surrenders, and he has the little like lotus flower dagger, mm-hmm. and Sing like spins it away and. I don't know if you saw this, but there's a, uh, I think there was a little bit of like a, a cultural touchstone there. There's a story about the Buddha instructing the disciples and he's sitting before them and they're expecting a teaching and he holds up a flower and that's all he does is he holds up this flower and eventually the flower, it, it droops and it dies because it's been plucked and he's. It's he's teaching a lesson on a lesson on impermanence, and there's a, it's a big story where a bunch of his disciples become enlightened at that moment, and I felt like that was what that was a reference to. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm I'm not familiar with Buddhism nearly as much as I am with some other Chinese religious traditions, so I, I wasn't familiar with that story. But that's that's a really cool little thing to notice in that movie. That's awesome. Yeah, it kind of like pulled the movie up. I was. I was kind of losing steam with the movie a little bit at once the beast kind of came in and and we were adding more layers. Um, but let's let's so we have the summary of the movie over. So let's move into our research section and let's talk about comedy because I think it happens naturally in in games. But I think aiming for it is fraught. It can be very rewarding, but it can also be very challenging. So the problem with comedy. And I have feelings about comic games. Mm -hmm. So as we've learned from Eli's jokes, comedy is hard. Ooh, sick burn. (laughs) (laughs) It could be a compliment, but no. um... (laughs) So the thing about comedy uh, is that there's a reason that like comics and uh, people who write for television shows and sitcoms and that sort of thing like work on that material over and over and over and over again. And it's because it takes a certain amount of like pacing and follow through. And there's lots of like little miniature structures within comedy that are very challenging. And to set a game up to be a comic game is to set a game up for failure. Now, 
we all like laugh and have a good time in our games. And we often laugh ourselves silly at like things that happen in games. So that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about setting up like a deliberately comic game and why there might be some perils in there. The big one and the thing that happened with this movie is that you can often become unmoored from the things that matter in the story. So when it was Pigsty Alley and we had the masters and the landlord and the landlady and we had Sing and Bone and, you know, that sort of conflict going on. Like we cared about Pigsty Alley and we cared about these other characters that we saw. But what happens later in the movie is that it it like breaks out of those bounds and literally like goes up into space (laughs) and has like nonsense stuff happen. And at that point, I was sort of I was finding myself losing interest because the thing that carries the story along uh, watching this community and sing interact and sing is entertaining to watch because he goes to make a decision and he always makes the wrong one. And he's sort of lovable for mm-hmm. that. Uh, and then we also see like, the value of the people that are in pigsty alley. And we really like love and care about them, even though they're all weirdos. And that sort of gets left behind when we, the, when the beast enters the story. And so the whole thing becomes a little like unmoored. Let's talk about this. Cause I, there are more thoughts here. Yeah, sure. I mean, I see where you're coming from and it's interesting because one of the reasons why I think this is a good example uh, from a designer's perspective of RPG comedy is that, you know, as a designer, you might make a setting that you're like, Oh yeah, this is going to be super serious and it's going to be, dramatic and it's going to be amazing but then like a table gets their hands on it and there are going to be a bunch of laughs and a bunch of like stupid little jokes and stuff like that's just kind of the nature of of gathering around a table with your friends to have some fun for a little while so i almost pictured this movie as an example of a story that could have been taken seriously, but then when the players got their hand on it, it became something very different. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, then, that's a fun way to look at it. Yeah, but I think I see what you're saying because from the perspective of a player, you don't necessarily want to make a model of this movie and to try and shoot for the kind of comedy that we see on display. Because like you said, comedy is a, a learned art and you can... You can get the basics, you know, uh, rule of threes. We saw that with natural born Kung Fu genius in this movie. I think it's mentioned exactly three times. Um, if you, if there's something funny that happens, you can usually mention it twice more in the session before it gets really worn out and you shouldn't do it anymore. Unless you keep hitting it more because it's right. It's funny, less funny, funny again. Not funny, not funny, not funny, not funny. Hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) So it's either three times or a million. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I I see where you're coming from. It's it's difficult to aim for this kind of tone and achieve it. But I was thinking that it was a cool example because even if you're not aiming to have a comedic game, you can end up with something like this fairly easily or maybe especially if you're not aiming to have a comedic game you can end up with something like this fairly easily so i think this might show you what it looks like when everyone is saying yes at the table and no one is saying no yeah 
And so that's part of what I'm talking about when it's becoming unmoored is that nobody is saying no to a thing that's happening. Like, hey, guys, didn't we have a story that we were getting back to? I'm like, yeah, we'll we'll deal with that later. Let's go open the space now. Yeah. Um, and I know that I find that particular type of like farce. It's really funny for a little bit of time, mm-hmm. but it kind of it wears yeah. a little bit. And it's also the problem of who plays the straight man. And who plays the Joker? Well, and like, for example, if you don't have a straight man or if the straight man is the game master who, no matter what system you're talking about, the game master, no matter how much power they are imbued with by the rules as written, in practice, it's usually a much more democratic situation. Like for, I can think of three or four comedy podcasts where the rubber just never meets the road. And like, it doesn't matter what kind of stuff the game master presents the the players with. It's just nothing ever happens because there's always going to be another joke and there's never any traction and the story, nothing happens. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, at least like we did progress all the way to the end of the story. Right. And then, and then things happen, but it's, it's one of those things that, um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but like you have to you have to pin that stuff down. So if you want a funny game, you should play with funny people. Mm-hmm. I think um, and well, again, I want to like kind of touch on this later, but like setting up your goofy game to be goofy at the beginning and like writing a bunch of jokes and like referential stuff in there is unless you yourself are extremely funny and have practiced this material. It is going to flop so hard. It's like setting up a twist, but it's like setting up lots of little twists, you know? And it's like, well, then the robot's underpants fell down. And you're like, what is going on? Like, I'm sure that was hilarious when you were thinking about it by yourself, but it it doesn't relate. It doesn't relate to anything. It's just silliness for like silly's sake. And like, you can get away with a certain amount of that, but like, you really have to kind of rein it back in. No, I totally agree. Yeah. And you know, I mean, as much as comedy can be a minefield, I think that it would be useful to talk about areas where generally role-playing games can be comedic, like some good tips for adding comedy to your game. Mm -hmm. And then also specifically about like, which kinds of comedy are most suitable for the wuxia genre. So, for example, this this movie has so many physical gags. Uh, the landlady slaps the hero around with her flip-flop. Um, the landlady is constantly beating up the landlord, and he's just taking it. Uh, Sing gets stabbed by like seven knives in a single scene. That, and that's probably my favorite one, because he's interacting with Bone, and Bone ends up pulling one of the knives out. And then he's like, oh, don't do that. And he puts the knife back in. <laughs> it's so weird. It's so funny. And it's really, yeah. So I think physical comedy is is really good. It's it's one of those things that, like, it's a great, like, little spice to add in. Yeah. And, you know, physical comedy is a really good example of a different kind of violence-based communication. Oh, you know? yeah. That's so good. We're learning a lot about the relationship between Sing and Bone and the character of both Sing and Bone in that scene where one of them just can't stop getting stabbed and the other one takes directions way too literally and ends up 
making the other one suffer even more for it. And I think it also shows the power of of a like a duo of mm-hmm. your you know of your straight man and your your clown. Mm-hmm. And so if you can get that relationship built up like as players, or if you can show that off between characters, you can really get that sight gags that aren't sight gags, right? Because we're just like communicating orally, but there's still, there's still definitely a way that you can get a patter going between players. And so, you know, Wuxia is really good for physical gags. Like that's fertile ground. I'm trying to think if there are any other really appropriate things. I think a lot of the other comedy that comes from Wuxia is usually so grounded in culture that it would be difficult to replicate at a table of people who aren't like, already immersed in that culture i think there's a lot of like character stuff that you can do that you can set up we get we get all of these like really colorful characters in pigsty alley and like Mm. just watching them interact is funny and like putting different combinations together and like seeing seeing what they do and seeing how they interact is is you know seeing the landlord interact with horse face jane (laughs) And then seeing the <laughs> landlady interact with Horseface Jane and, you know, seeing all of these things happen and seeing her interact with the tailor. And so, like, getting seeing all of these different interactions, uh, comedy, like, tends to spin out of that, especially when you have characters that have big characteristics that stand out. Yeah, and I don't know that that's necessarily specific to Wuxia, but no. it's definitely a good comedy note in general, you right. know. But it's one that we've talked about, like, creating broad stroke but memorable characters before mm-hmm. and that's something that wuxia does well and so in mm-hmm. addition to physical gags because wuxia is a very physical storytelling medium we're also getting these like these like broad but still interesting characters and then we can we can put them together and see how those see how those characters you know bounce off of each other so i think then we've got four basic rules of universal comedy storytelling at this point the first one is rule of threes and that's maybe the most specific and unhelpful uh thing that we've discussed so far just because it's a real hit or miss kind of thing another one is yeah sure have a clown character but have a straight man character to keep it balanced a third one you know you want to bounce big bold characters off of each other and see what happens to them and then the fourth one find a joke hit it and then move on yep I think those are all good. And the rule of threes could also just be called, we can also just be talking about callbacks. Because mm-hmm. sometimes even if you call back just one time, if you do it in the right moment, uh, it's, you know, you can usually get a good laugh out of it. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, we're not comedy experts any more than we're Wuxia experts, but that's a good setup for dealing with comedy in mm-hmm. uh, Wuxia games. But let's actually talk about like what we can take out of Kung Fu Hustle specifically and bring it into our games. The first thing on my list, I love the pacing of this movie. One of the things that frustrates me about role-playing games is how often it's just spinning your wheels going through a scene, you know, like uh, the classic example is spending an hour shopping for something. Right, or getting um, through a door. Yeah, that's that's not a dramatic part of the story. I suppose it can be, but the chances are pretty slim. And uh, by contrast, this movie... Let's talk about just the first 10 minutes of this movie. Um, We have a couple sentences and a couple shots that establish the exact setting. Gangsters rule everything. The law is ineffective. The only way you can escape this cycle is by living an extremely impoverished life. Um, And then we see that impoverished life. Every character gets pretty much one intro shot that's, that's all tied together by this central landlord figure. And then... 
we get a slightly longer intro from the main characters, Sing and Bone. And then pretty much right after that, you go straight into the fighting. There is no fat on the intro to this movie. And I love that. It's such an inspiration for me. And I wish more gamers would see that in movies and say, oh yeah, that's something that I need to bring to the table. You know, I want to, I want to have a potent, tiny detail about my character and then pass the hat to somebody else. Right. So you may need to prime people and go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do a, a montage intro. I want a little 10 second thing that your character is doing that demonstrates what your character is about. And like, mm-hmm. let people think about it for a second and then come and then hit it and get each one of those in turn and then set up your big shot. Right. And then, and then move right into mm-hmm. the action. I, I will say too, you know, as far as that goes, giving people a, a guideline like that, we're going to do a quick 10 second intro in practice. Cause I, I'm constantly trying to get people to, to boil down their stuff at the table. And in practice, whenever I say like, you know, give us two sentences about your character right now, it invariably turns into six. <laughs> Almost every <laughs> single person that I've ever said that to is like, okay, well, maybe sentence and sentence. Oh, and then sentence and sentence and sentence. I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Great. Wonderful. Let's move on. <laughs> right. But that's when you have to use your narrative authority as a game master mm-hmm. to go great and cutting and we're moving over here, you mm-hmm. know, or to even do, and, and I'll do this sometimes for intros is like, you'll talk to somebody about their character and kind of what they do. And then you'll just set them in the scene doing the thing. Yeah. And then they can figure out why they were doing that thing later. Um, just use a little bit like you have the most authority as a game master at the very beginning of a scene and the very end of a scene. Uh, so use it. So set frame. Like, I mean, it's the same for drama as it is for comedy, except comedy is harder. And you want to frame it as hard and as fast as you can. Zip through it. Get to the interesting part and then get out. Start late. Leave early. Make sure that you just really keep that that pace up. Absolutely, yeah. I, I love what you said. You know, GMs have the most authority at the beginning and the end of a scene. That's absolutely right. They they dictate the beginning and end of scenes, and and that's that. You you got to realize that, and you got to make use of it. Right, and I I think that it's too easy to go. Okay, well, where were we in the last scene? Okay, well, we'll pick up a little bit later from there, and then we'll you know we'll roll into this. And there's so many games I've seen that could have just they could have started a third of the way into the story. And then if we need to go back, we can flash back and deal with that kind of stuff or we could talk yeah. about it later, but like, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's go. The other thing that this movie does really well, and it is sometimes extremely jarring, but it makes the comedy work better is the tone changes that happen in this movie. So in addition to all of like the various pacing of like getting in and out of scenes. So there's the scene where, the axe gang comes to find out who threw the firecracker into the hat, right? That's funny, Mm -hmm. right? But then he's going to hit the guy with the axe. That's not funny. And then he gets his back broken and that's funny. And then they pour gasoline on a mother and child. And that's very not funny. Not even close. Right. But then, but then we get a cool, like exciting Kung Fu fight scene out of it. And we get that like heroic, that, you know, we get the the very depths of what, like, potentially watching somebody burn to death. And this movie, anything could go. We saw a guy get his leg chopped off with an axe in the first scene. So will they set somebody on fire? I don't know. You know, but then getting the switch from that into into the cool heroic fight scene. 
is another great tone change. So use tone. And this is a thing that both players can do and GMs can do to, but you need to alternate because if you hit the yucks over and over and over again, they wear out. Mm -hmm. And so you have to go, okay, we had a comedic beat and now we need to have some sort of downbeat. And then we can have the inversion of that. And then that makes it funny. And then we have something else happen. And then, you know, so that's that's part of the reason why Singh is in the movie and why he keeps making the wrong decisions. Because we keep seeing him, like, do a thing and assume something about a situation. And that's funny. And then it, it ends up going bad for him. And, you know, so you, you keep getting you keep getting this flip-flop back and forth. And it not only makes the comedy funnier, but that tone change keeps us from getting bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and moves the action along. You're absolutely right. And uh, I didn't actually notice how effective the tone changes are in this, you know. But, like, we've got we've got the scene where Singh and Bone are just lamenting their, their lot in life and talking about how they're these hapless criminals, these mm-hmm. low-rate, total loser criminals— and it's like, why would they? Why would they do this? And then you see, oh, it's because they have deep-seated childhood trauma <laughs> that convinced <laughs> them that this was the way to live. <laughs> and it's like, oh wow, yeah, that really does. That does contextualize their mo, you know? <laughs> right. And I mean, and you can use it for all kinds of things. You don't just have to use it for comedy. But there's a. It's a great way of like mixing things together because if you change tones quickly. There's a little, there's that period in between where they sort of blend together. So there was a great one where Singh and Bone have just robbed the, uh, have just robbed Fong's like candy and ice cream cart. Uh, And then Mm -hmm. they break up because Singh feels like Bone's not doing anything. He's not participating and he's just a nuisance, right? And he's, he's basically like telling the good dog to go away. And it's. It's sort of, it's a heart it's kind of a heartbreaking scene and we can see Singh making the wrong choice and it hurts and we see Bone's feelings get hurt and they like split apart on the screen and then Bone comes back and gives Singh the soda that he stole because he stole two sodas from from the cart and he gives Singh one of them and that's mm-hmm. a really good like sweet little uh tone change because it's a little joke right there at the end of this sort of heartfelt scene, but it makes it a little melancholy as well as funny. Yeah, no, you're totally right. So another thing moving on from tone change is we talked about this establishing shot where we see all of these characters and we talked about some of the problematic stereotypes that are in this movie. But one thing that this movie does is that it manages to make you care about these characters, even though they start out as stereotypes and they draw strong characters out of them by partially subverting the stereotypes. So we have, I think the biggest one is probably the tailor because he's coded in such an insensitive way. And, but then he ends up being this cool, uh, strong arm fighter with these rings and he's really great. He doesn't have that like physical presence that you would necessarily expect from a Kung Fu master, mm-hmm. but you love him kind of all the more for it. Mm-hmm. Although I got to say, I was doing a little research about these characters before we recorded and uh, the Wikipedia page for that actor, uh, Chu Chi Ling, has Mm -hmm. a random link to just a picture somewhere on the internet of him as a young man. And the dude was jacked when he was younger. (laughs) It's it's really amazing. I'm actually going to I'm going to send this to you. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> so they they take these characters and they give them like an unassuming start or they draw a kind of un, an unflattering stereotype on them. And then they take them and then they they twist them or they invert them. And we get we get to see characters come out of that that we actually care about. And it's a really great way of not so much like creating comedy, though it does work that way because subversion is often a way to like get a good joke. But it's also a way of creating a character that you can inhabit quickly as a player, but then turn it on its head later and make it a real character and break it out of the stereotype. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I thought this movie did really well is that it took some of these characters that are very thinly, thinly, but broadly drawn and then broke them out into real characters. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the last thing I have for this section, it's not the last thing we're going to talk about drawing the nonsense to a close. At some point you need to take all of these threads that have been flung out into Looney Tunes land and you need to start gathering them together. And this is often the responsibility of the game master, but it doesn't have to be. None of this like narrative authority stuff has to be the sole responsibility of the game master. But that's when you start doing your callbacks and you're using your rule of threes and having your tone changes maybe be a little more serious or maybe just start like wrapping up some of these things so that you don't just have your plot to your game just evaporate into a broader and broader pool of nonsense that at some point you need to like anchor it back to some sort of story structure and pull it back down to earth. Uh, and they sort of do that literally in this movie. I totally agree. Go as, as far as they can. And then they literally pull it back down to earth. Right. And then the next scene is we're normal people now. Yeah. Like I was a Buddha in the previous scene and now I work at a candy store. Mm -hmm. So whatever it takes, close it down. Uh, because uh, a joke without a without a punchline can still be funny, uh, but it won't stick. Yeah, you're right. And I think there are a lot of games that don't do anything to help you bring sessions to a close or bring like a campaign or any unit of storytelling to a close. And so it's it's definitely something that you kind of have to pick up on your own. And I think... Especially with comedy, that can be a real minefield. It can be difficult to know when you're supposed to do that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes comedy so challenging. It can be really rewarding when you nail it, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's one of those things that's almost just serendipity when you're doing it ad lib yeah. as opposed to like writing it out. And so if you can draw your story to a natural conclusion, even if the joke doesn't necessarily tie up, at least you have the satisfaction of the closed loop of the story. And you've got one more thing on here. So let's let's talk about this because I feel like uh, this movie has this going all over the place. The only thing that I have left to talk about is, uh, in, in the Gameable Ideas section anyway, is increasing power and scale through the course of the story. And the clearest example of this is Sing, but... I think that the sort of surprise revelations of these secret Kung Fu powers all throughout the movie is an example of the same kind of thing. Uh, we've got the landlady who originally is, she looks like she's just some poor tenement landlady. And then all of a sudden we find out she's got superpowers. And likewise, Singh is this totally inept dude throughout the entire movie, but then he almost as a result of all of his suffering, he unlocks his 
kung fu genius and has a massive scale boost at the end. Uh, he goes from being probably the lowest powered character, the lowest scale character, to being the very highest scale, perhaps in history as far as the world of this movie is concerned. The thing that's interesting about this and the thing, uh, the gameable part of this kind of puts me up against a, a thing that I'm uncomfortable with in, in a lot of games. And that's secrets, ah. right? But like, if you were going to play this game, like the most fun way would be for everyone to have like a, a secret character sheet. And then you don't know that everybody, like that there are secret masters involved. And then like people can like reveal that they have it at, at an appropriate time. You know, what's kind of interesting to me, mm. I'm picturing this gameplay schema where characters start off at you know, level one, they start off as just normal schmucks. And then the game master presents a challenge that is beyond their ability. And each character has a certain number of secrets. And so the game master is like, okay, here's a challenge that's beyond your ability. One of the characters says, oh, but I have a secret. And then that character levels up to the point where they can contend against this problem. Mm -hmm. And then the story continues. The game master presents a new, bigger challenge. A different character says, oh, but I have a secret. And then they level up to beat this power. But then the the first character who who burned their secret earlier, they're kind of stuck there. And they have to fight with whatever they've got available. Or maybe you've got... Or they have to wait until everyone else's secrets have come out. Yeah. Before they can reveal a new secret. Yeah. It's an interesting... I guess it would be an advancement mechanic. Uh, based. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that's that's pretty fun. And it, it, it solves the problem that I was thinking of, because it would be a thing that you could create on the fly. And it would be the thing where you start as the stereotype, but then your secret subverts the stereotype. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a little I don't my knee jerk reaction to it is like, oh, well, I mean, that's kind of power gamey it's kind of just pure wish fulfillment it's like oh there's a problem oh well conveniently i can rise to the challenge but that's kind of the way stories work a lot of the time anyway so it's not necessarily mm -hmm. a bad thing no it's it's not a bad thing and there's no reason that like you're entirely successful even though you have this secret like there may still be consequences mm -hmm. but yeah that's fun that's a fun way to think about it and, and it does avoid the problem of secret secrets which i do not care for let's move on to our stealing as art section it's chock full of stuff and i've got some stuff you've got some stuff lots of comedy stuff in games and i'm putting comedy in quotation marks for some games and actual comedy <laughs> for other games yeah all right so i'm i'm sort of starting a category for this first one that i'm bringing out and this is the this is the problem that i talk about and that's your tune your paranoia it came from the late late show your goofy premise games that are built on jokes and there are people that love these games and that's that's fine uh i have sort of a fundamental problem with them in that the thing that you wrote down by yourself is not necessarily funny to the other people at the table and it leaves you unmoored when you start as the the kernel of your story as a joke it leaves you nowhere to go in terms of an actual story except for more jokes and then it ends up just people running around with their pants around their ankles and that's it my gold standard for a comedy role-playing game is inspectors 
Inspectors has a really great way of moving the narrative authority between the players and the game master. And Inspectors is basically like Ghostbusters meets The Office. Yeah, I'm familiar with it from a conversation between Nathan Paoletta and uh, Will Hindmarch on their Design Games podcast. It sounds like yeah. an amazing game. <laughs> Nathan and I both really admire this game, and it's sort of one that we're both down to play whenever. But the thing that the text sort of admonishes you to do is make ordinary characters. Because if you make a silly character, you will not have as much fun because you don't have anywhere to go. Whereas if you play a normal character, when you're dealing with supernatural threats and you are completely inept, you don't have the right equipment, you have customers that won't pay, and all of these like complications mounting, you can react in a real fashion that is actually funny. Yeah, so it's like the it's not the characters that are funny, it's the situations they find themselves in. Right. And then the thing that the game mechanic does is that when you roll, the better you roll, the more you get to narrate your own your own actions, but the sweet spot is like sort of in the middle where you have to narrate it with like a complication or something funny that happens and it lets people put their characters into humorous situations. But without having the need to be like, oh, I rolled a six. So that means I have to tell a joke now. And it's, yeah. it lets you uh, develop a situation that becomes funny and also gives the GM, if it's like below a certain range, then the GM narrates. And that gives GM a chance to like put the brakes on a little bit. Or if people aren't doing enough, then you can kind of ramp it up. And it gives a GM like a little bit of speed control on what's going on in the narrative in terms of like, how far out there it is or like how serious it needs to be cool yeah so inspectors is really great um everybody should check it out uh it's a short game and it's ghostbusters and so come on <laughs> what's not to love um what's not to love uh so the next one i'm going to bring up because it sort of inhabits both of these is fiasco so i talked about this movie is sort of a game where no one said no mm -hmm. and that it sort of like spins out and games of fiasco, because they're GMless, often have that problem where you start out and it's a, your ordinary sort of like Coen Brothers style thing. And at the end, there's, you know, clowns shooting popcorn guns and, you know, all kinds of nonsense. And you spent two hours playing and nobody really cares about the end of the story. But if you can, if you can sort of modulate how much yes ending there is and throw in a, a no but every once in a while you can create these stories that are both very funny and also stories but they take a hand at the rudder and so sometimes gmless games suffer from this like rudderless problem and so fiasco has sort of like both of those things which is why i call it out um, i think it's still a tremendous game but it's it has sort of like a known issue with it mm -hmm. and then i think a game that does the thing that it gets in it ramps up and then it gets out is all out of bubblegum because your character gets progressively sillier as the game goes on and becomes incapable of doing unsilly things. And then at some point your economy runs out and the game is over. Cool. Uh, and that's, and, and inspectors actually has this, has a similar thing where the game is paced based on how well the players are rolling. And so sometimes games are quite short uh, and that is better for comedy. You want to get out early, like we said. So the games that I was thinking of, uh, I'm going to start off to kind of, springboard off of what you've just been talking about uh, swords without master i think is a good example of a game that pulls things together for the end game 
Uh, it's it's sort of a directionless game, but you're collecting these. Uh, it's mysteries that trigger the end game, right? Uh, no, it is uh, the number of threads, threads that you have. That's it. Yeah. So it's kind of a directionless game, but you collect threads throughout the story. And then once you've gathered enough threads, you realize, oh, now we have to find a way to bring this to a close. We've We've triggered a certain number of threads, and then that signifies how we're going to wrap everything up it's almost like you're establishing themes emerging throughout the game and then once you've got enough of them you know oh, okay these are the themes of our story this is how we're going to end it and i think a similar system can be really helpful when it comes to a comedy game and you can say um you know okay well this was a really good joke this was a really good joke this was a really good joke that's enough jokes now we know what the heart of this story is all about in terms or what the 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 belly laugh of this story is all about and we can tie it all together with what we've gathered so far right it's it's a callback mechanic in a really explicit way Mm -hmm. and it's even like if you wanted to make a funny game and i think it's actually derived from sort of a funny game um called monkey dome Mm. i don't know if you know the history of the swords of that master game i know enough to know that it came from monkey dome but that's about all i know about it Right, so it was a game simulating Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which is both extremely gritty, and, and a guy gets hit with a shovel and it makes a patoing yeah. noise. <laughs> so the thing that's great about the threads is that they're in three sets of three, and you can't move off of the second set until you've combined two images from the first set. And then again on the third one, you can't fill up that third one until you... Um, combine two from the second set and then at the end of the game you need to take a couple on each card and again wrap those together and so what it does is that it it takes this this game that can basically go anywhere and gives it thematic ties that like loop through and then at the end of the game they all tie together and there's no reason you couldn't do that with silly stuff sure if you were doing like a funny uh, if you were doing a funny game the other thing that swords of that master does that we talked about is that it gives the over player who's the the gm role uh explicit scene setting and scene ending authority in a lot of the different types mm-hmm. and tells you you have full authority to set this however you want as we've said many times before swords without master is just a brilliant game and it has a lot of parallels with the wuxia genre so (laughs) yeah and i mean it has a lot of parallels like like we said you could make a comedy game another game that i want to bring up is index card rpg i've mentioned this before specifically for its clock mechanic which it uses much more broadly than um, blades in the dark's similar mechanic Uh, blades in the dark the suggestion at least in the book is is that clocks are a good way to count down events and specifically like you know the guards show up or uh, the the bomb gets detonated or or what have you Uh, with index card rpg they use it for everything you use clocks for picking uh, a lock on a chest you use clocks for climbing a cliff you you use clocks for a bad guy's hit points or whatever and i think one really clear example of a clock being used in this movie is the fight between the beast the landlord and the landlady in the casino because the beast is clearly invulnerable to anything that they have that they can throw at him. And even the almighty lion's roar from the landlady is something that the beast is capable of resisting. And so there's this scene where the two of them are just 
trying not to lose any ground against the beast at the same time that they're beating the top off of this gigantic bell to turn it into this huge megaphone thing. And they have a, I, I pictured it as a clock. They are, they are working against time while trying not to lose ground so that they can convert this bell into a giant megaphone. And then that can amplify the lion's roar and maybe it has a chance to defeat the beast. And the beast's hit points in this case are maybe not a clock, but there's definitely a trigger event. You know, they have to turn this thing into a megaphone before they can have any hope of affecting the big bad guy that they're facing. You set the, the consequence for the clock filling up as defeating the bad guy. Or at least being able to hurt him. I, I think. Sure. Uh, and I don't know that I would recommend that for a role playing game. But in this movie, at least, that seems to be what happens when the clock is filled. Uh, they don't. They're still not capable of really beating him, but they can at least harm him now. Um, uh, the the only other game that I have on my list is Blades in the Dark, which uh, I thought of while you were talking about pacing in this movie and mm-hmm. how it's so short and how we're thrown kind of right into the action and we have to rely on little asides and callbacks and that sort of thing to flesh out the scene. And that's exactly what Blades in the Dark is all about. Uh, The flashback mechanic, the engagement role, that's front and center uh, a feature of that game. It definitely like gets you like, we're not going to worry about how we're, how we're getting there. We're not going to do much planning. We're just going to do this thing. And a lot of times, especially if you want to keep a scene like fresh and exciting, like that's what you want. You want to like take that, that, mentality from blades in the dark and put it in just about anything mm-hmm. i agree yeah, so that's this a was a, a pretty long list of uh ga- of stealing as art you know we had quite a few games here some of them are repeat offenders on our show but uh sure new ones in there as well yeah yeah and it's uh it's it's interesting because i give comedy games a lot of side eye and uh you know i'm generally sort of distrustful of them because it is so because i know it is challenging um, and there's a reason that a lot of times you will see a comic actor in a dramatic role. Uh, it's because if you were trained in comedy, comedy is harder mm-hmm. and drama is easier. So if you can do the hard one first, you can do the easy yeah. one. And unfortunately it can be tough for the audience to adjust, but, um, right. the actor is at least usually capable of that. So, but that's good news because if you play with funny people, they can probably do the dramatic thing too. If they can kind of get over themselves a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because I always think that like role players are, they're generally like pretty funny people because they're, 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 they're good at thinking on their feet. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can really like broaden our palette a little bit and get a really rich story that is both funny and dramatic, uh, which is, which is exciting to think about. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, shall we move on to comments that we've received? Absolutely. We have quite a few. Well, we don't have a ton, but they are, they're meaty. Yeah, they sure are. <laughs> so first off, we had a comment from Fraser Ronald. This comment came in after our 10th episode, which was uh, introduction to like a summary of what we've discussed so far and then comparing Wuxia to other genres. And it actually prompted such a response from Fraser that he gave us the short version in a comment, and then he linked us to his blog where he has a full explanation. And the blog post is great, so we're going to link it in uh, in the show notes here. But um, the short version on the comment itself is, okay, so rather than be a long-winded pedant here about samurai cinema, I'm going to give you the TLDR. 
I can't think of a good samurai movie with a samurai acting in their role in society. Why? I think it's because that isn't exciting. Just as wuxia is not about individuals in China acting within their expected roles and undertaking expected tasks, most chanbara isn't about samurai doing their job or following their societal role as expected. And uh, the blog post expands on that. He points out that the movies that we mentioned, 13 Assassins and uh, whichever other one it was, I can't remember right now, um, but those are actually not about landed, uh, lieged samurai. They're, they're about samurai who violate their code and decide to forsake their samurai status to go do what they think is right. And that is, as Fraser points out, really in keeping with wuxia tenets, uh, the same sort of extra legal vibe i'm always glad to get like more information i i think at some point we're going to try to look at some samurai cinema hopefully soon mm -hmm. um if if everything aligns properly but it's definitely a genre that like i need to explore because I, fraser's right the only ones i can think of are more in line with a wuxia protagonist than uh, a knight necessarily so um, we'll definitely have to do some exploration of that. I, I mean, I think there is definitely some drama in the chivalric side, uh, and I'm curious where that comes out in the, sh the samurai genre. Yeah, and personally, I really hope that The Last Samurai is not the only example of samurai who are actually, like, tied by their obligations to their lord. <laughs> there must <laughs> sure be it's not a the different case. movie. That... I'm sure that movie didn't actually invent any new ground. Yes, surely not. So we'll we'll do our research and see what we can find. <laughs> so Rob Day hits us up on Twitter, and he says, Two notes. You mentioned warehouse fights. Preach, brothers. Even tabletop adventures, enough. So he's talking about the blank space where you have a fight Put some stuff in it. And uh, one thing that Feng Shui encourages players to do is to just invent scenery if there isn't scenery um, and work it into your descriptions. So mm -hmm. you know, if you have that kind of game style, then definitely do that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, no more blank rooms, you guys. Yeah. Rob continues on the monkey versus daredevil idea in the sword and the mind. Munanori talks about switching your rhythm of combat not to match your opponent. So that's sort of talking about people who have like different fighting styles or whose fighting styles are similar, but you need to like change just a little bit to, to make the, to make to, for us, it was to make the combat interesting and exciting, but he's actually talking about like real actual combat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which cool, man. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love hearing that. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's so much good literature out there that I have not read really any of because I am not an actual martial artist. Uh, the last thing is an email from Brendan Davis, who is the host of the Bedrock podcast, which is another great Wuxia podcast. And he also has a really great Google Plus community. Uh, and they dig into like a lot more like literature and stuff there. Uh, it's super interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but he sent us a really uh, great and fairly lengthy email. So sort of buckle in, everybody, about our, our last episode, about what wasn't great with Wuxia. And he has some other things to say to us. So he says, I just wanted to offer an alternative perspective on disabilities in Wuxia. I'm not trying to change your opinions. I just want to add another voice to the conversation. I'm not blind or suffering a disability of that magnitude, but I am pretty much housebound. He has some health issues that I sort of took out of this. Prior to this, I was a martial arts uh, enthusiast. I was also a Wuxia and Kung Fu fan. Uh, in the wake of surgeries and the changes, 
One-Armed Swordsman became my favorite film. Similar films like The Crippled Avengers, I also found myself watching again and again. I think the thing that interested me most about these films was that wuxia seems to come in two types when dealing with characters losing sight or limbs. In some wuxia, it is over once you lose a limb, you can't fight anymore. In others, the characters overcome the loss through perseverance and achieve some special edge, though they often still have a clear and obvious weakness due to the loss. I think that both approaches capture something of the reality of suddenly being disabled. I found these characters easy to identify with because they were not disabled their entire lives in most cases. My disability is not as bad as some other people's, but it greatly impacts my daily routine and life. And one of the things I find helpful is thinking of these kinds of characters because they embody perseverance, which is a very important aspect of martial arts in general. So I don't see it as spectacle as much as these are characters who, uh, with great effort, have balanced out a loss and learned to supplement with other strengths. So in the case of Master of the Flying Guillotine, hearing. They are not automatically given abilities because they became disabled. The point is martial arts, and more importantly, the philosophy behind martial arts can provide a path for navigating that kind of hurdle. I'm just one voice on this issue, obviously, but I think films that handle disability in this way have a lot of value that is easy to miss. It is worth noting that even the same wuxia writer often captures both of these poles. If you read Return of Condor Heroes, the source material One-Armed Swordsman is based on, the main character loses an arm but becomes a great hero in the setting. However, the writer has two important disabled characters in the very next book in the trilogy, Heaven Sword and Dragon Saber. One is blind and one is unable to walk or move. And in those cases, the disabilities are not overcome in the same way as Yang Guo's is in Return of Condor Heroes. I was really not just like touched that like he put that much effort into it, but that he really did like change my perspective on that because I've seen the crippled Avengers. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And to my eyes, it's extremely exploitative. Right. And you know, but I'm an, I'm an able-bodied person and watching this movie and, but it's really great to like get some other perspectives and it doesn't mean that like one of us is wrong, but it's, it's like what we were talking about before that problematic material is more complicated than just it's good or it's bad. Uh, and Brendan's perspective on this as taking it as inspiring, uh, I think is, is super interesting and exciting to think about. I agree. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I think what he said rings true for me. He's just one voice uh, on this issue and uh we can't really take what he's saying as total gospel it's just his perspective and it's a valuable perspective but other people will think differently and we need to be aware of and sensitive to that as well um but he did he did really open my eyes as to the potential i guess empowerment factor of a wuxia hero who becomes disabled and then overcomes that disability through their training and discipline and and the philosophy of martial arts like he said he's got some more thoughts here uh he's he knows a lot. He probably knows more than us, and you should probably listen to him, but listen to us still, too. He says, regarding the Thai boxer, so there was the Thai boxer in Master of the Flying Guillotine that did a little dance, and we sort of remarked on it. So he says, regarding the Thai boxer, just to answer the question that one of you voiced during the episode, there is a ritual dance before matches begin called the Ram Moy. This is an expression of respect to your teacher and others. I think the overall look and style is derived from the Ramakien, the Thai version of the Ramayana epic. It is a very beautiful thing to see done well. The music is played during the Ramway, but also during the fight itself. If you want to see more examples of Chinese filmmakers dealing with Muay Thai, I highly recommend Duel of Fists by Chan Che, 
The Tournament with Angela Mao and Boxer's Omen. This one also features the animal thing you guys were talking about. Pretty sure that one was Muay Thai as well. If you want to see a Muay Thai movie from Thailand, I do recommend Ong Bak, which you've probably heard of or seen, but mentioning for completeness. Yep, absolutely. You should definitely check out Ong Bak mm-hmm. to, to get a, like another culture's perspective and to see a new martial art. And anyway, he wraps up and he says, always enjoying the show. I'm liking the conversations you were having about scale in particular. I have my own gaming projects and a martial arts podcast. I do. So I'm really appreciating the level of quality you guys are trying to bring to each episode. Well, Brendan, we really appreciate this very like in-depth and thorough email that you sent us um we really appreciate it and anybody who wants to send us an email you know it's it's at the end of the show and we'd love to hear your thoughts especially if we um if we say something and it's not complete like we'd love to hear about it we'd love part of the reason that we're doing this is so that we can learn and that we can make our game better when it when it eventually comes out so the more that you can help educate us the better we can do. Absolutely. And uh, I'll go ahead and chime in too. I've listened to it a couple episodes of the Bedrock podcast. And it, like you said, it's really solid work. They they have, I think, I would say a more academic understanding of the genre than you and I do, or at least uh, Chinese culture. They, they seem to know a lot of little tidbits about culture in the genre that would be missed by you or I and they watch I think most of the movies they've watched are older movies that we have not yet gotten to so there's a lot of uh there's a lot of potential for people to learn more by listening to that podcast too so definitely go check that out so there's one more comment this one is from uh my friend Ryan Watson he is a guy that I used to hang out with and we did this thing called Kung Fu Fridays where we would watch uh the trashiest Kung movie Kung Fu movies we could find together it was a good time <laughs> he was listening to our episode, the last one, about what's bad about Wuxia, and he threw out some random trivia as he was listening, kind of like live messaging me about it. So he said that Thai boxers do do a, a ritual dance before bouts, similar to the way sumo wrestlers, which has its own thing before each bout. Um, he agreed that the movie is totally racist against the Thai, especially the guy being barefoot and being essentially viewed as gross and unkempt. And then he said another weird, cool martial arts movie thing. Thai movies often have trans women characters where their transness isn't a defining part of their character or an object of ridicule. But he said he couldn't think of one where they're a main character or a good person. So I felt like that was a nice little tidbit to add to the discussion about problematic character representation in Wuxia. Um, I'm almost totally unfamiliar with Thai movies. I've seen Ong Bak and a, a few other Tony Jaa movies, but um, otherwise it's it's a, a wild terrain for me. And um, it's interesting to see that apparently Thai movies do have trans women characters that are presented at least not as an object of ridicule. That's, that's cool. I mean, I'm curious if they're presented as villainous because that's always like the next, like that's that's another level of coding. That often happens. Right. I'm not sure, you know, uh, if Ryan wants to get back to us or if somebody can recommend a movie um, that we could check out. That's that's always a thing that that is um, that we should check into. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's definitely something that I'm curious about just for my own purposes, even beyond the podcast to know if there are good examples of representation in Eastern cinema and particularly older cinema, because uh, we're all all around the world more woke than we used to be (laughs) let's let's hope so let's hope it it keeps going yeah and but one thing that can't keep going is this podcast wow so 
Yeah. That was we got to wrap it up. That was a good transition. Wow. Thank you very much. <laughs> and also, thanks everyone for listening. And remember to make your Kung Fu stronger. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Hustle. You can reach Eli at ZapDynamic on Twitter or on his website, mythicgazetteer.com. You can reach me at Eric M. Farmer on Twitter or at my website, dogpoweredvehicle.com. You can reach both of us at Hustle on Twitter or Hustle at gmail.com or on the Misdirected Mark website. Thanks for listening.